Open your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Can't get any closer to the front than that. Verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice the pronoun man and him seems singular, but it's plural, because what does man consist of? Male and female, he created them. So he's talking about humanity, not just man himself. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, There's some books tonight I want to tell you about homosexuality. There are a myriad of books, literally. I must have a dozen, if not more, of them. And I just decided tonight to give you the two that were probably the best and easiest to read through and get the most out of. And so I put them on the screen for you tonight. Um, One is, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? And it's very, Owen Strachan just always goes straight to the point. He's very good at using scripture. Always super organized and well laid out. So if you you like that kind of a book where someone who goes through it and it's so easy to follow and and that makes it easier to remember, he's your guy. And it's, it's it's a little book like this. It's in a series and I used some of it in my last time with transgenderism, some of the concepts or things that he talked about. It's three of them, lust, transgenderism, and homosexuality. It's a, they're all about this big, um, hardbacks. Um, very good. You can buy them individually or as a set. But he is well worth your investment if you want to be an apologetic on this subject. And the other one is from a very, very good Christian counselor, Transforming Homosexuality by Denny Burke. He's just really very insightful and more of not just an apologetic, but more of counseling um, of uh, that side of it as well. And he's always worth reading too. So, you know, out of the lots of books that are out there, these two, I think, would be uh, more and generically what everybody would be interested in. Um, So uh, those two are there for you to read that tonight. Let me get sure it's back here. So we're going to look at three, uh, two parts actually tonight in this presentation. It's going to be Satan's deception and God's deliverance. Those are our two categories. And so we're going to talk about the lies of homosexuality and then try to counteract them with the truths of God's word about it. Um, I think it's an obvious statement, and if you know, if you watch television or the news or read anything in culture, or just look around, observe, you can understand sexuality has become the defining issue and identity marker of our time. That's just obvious. Um, Secular view says sexuality is not just something I do, 
but sex is something I am. And that is really the core of it. At Faith Christian School, we just got our t-shirts that everybody gets to wear this year. Our theme that we're having throughout the year at Faith Christian School is Jesus, my number one identity. He's not our only identity, but he is the identity. He is the umbrella, the, the ultimate identity that all other identities become subservient to. And we're, we chose that purposely at Faith Christian School because of this and many other issues that are all at their core and, and at foundational roots are identity issues. And, and let me just tell you, although this is not per se a sermon on identity, every single person in this room struggles with it. You may not realize it, but it is a constant battle to find yourself as being in Christ and making that what is what defines who you are. Um, we're going to, a little later, we're going to look at Corinth and how God delivers people from homosexuality. And you can't be half in Christ and the other half in Corinth. And that church really struggled with that in a lot of different ways, sexuality being one of them. And so there's a lot to be learned from them. But I want you to know one of the first lies is, is that, and a lot of people, including our young people, are buying it, is your identity is all about your sexuality. Um, the biblical view, on the other hand, our identity is much more than our sexuality. It, it, you know, sexuality or gender however, you want to, gender, however you want to put it. It is part of our identity that we are male and female. We read that tonight. But that's not what makes us um, our identity. Um, Genesis, right in that passage, Moses is very clear in God telling him that our, our identity comes from being made in the image of God. That's what we're about. And the lie says that homosexuality is good and acceptable, no different than heterosexuality. And because we live in an age of tolerance, that if you say anything different than that today, you're denying the humanity of people who have what's called, if you'll see this term if you studied SSA, which would be same-sex attraction. It's a very common term that's used. And if you deny people that, our culture says you're dehumanizing their sexual identity because remember today, you might why, ask, why do people get so angry over this because remember it's they don't they don't view sexuality as just something they do it is who they are so imagine yourself telling someone you know how wrong you are for saying your identity is being a christian that would make you upset for them this is their identity being homosexual homosexual is their identity, and you're telling them that they're wrong, that that isn't true, and they take great offense at it. It's not just they're doing things wrong. You're questioning their very existence of who they are. Um, so at the front tonight, I want to tell you this, that it's obvious that we would believe the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. It's sinful. We're going to even talk about it tonight. It's an abomination. And in that sense, we would be anti-gay, um, but not in a sinful way. Do you remember the first Peter 3 verse we prayed about that we would give an answer to the hope that is in us with meekness and fear? Meekness meaning horizontally, I power under. I'm not here just to win an argument when I have this apologetic conversation with people. I'm not here just to prove how wrong you are and how right uh, I am. Meekness, I power under people. I, I humbly teach them the truth and speak them to them in love. And, and that approach is, you know, how I say things, not just what I say, matters. And then with fear means 
vertically. So horizontally, I'm meek, I'm meek, and vertically, I have fear of God because I know this, that they may be in a very deep sin, but by word of the grace of God, it could have been me. And so I'm always mindful of those two aspects. So we're very clear tonight that the Bible speaks clearly about homosexuality, and I've read over and over again, and I can tell you, and you know this already, not a single word of praise for homosexuality in the Bible, not one, zero. In fact, quite the opposite, biblical um, homosexuality in every form, and, and by that I mean whether it's you claiming to have a homosexual identity, whether you're having homosexual actions, whether you have homosexual desires, um, any of those and all of those in every form of it would be considered sin in the Bible. And much more than just generically saying sin, it is called unrighteousness, it is called ungodly, and it is actually rebellion against God and the authority of his word. So tonight, everything we say about it, um, we say in love, but it's grounded in the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, the sufficiency, and the clarity of Scripture. And all of those things matter, as in every issue. So let me tell you about the lie, I am my sexuality. Number one, the Bible says that our sexuality and identity is fixed. Okay? So these are, this is a good comparison, because this is a huge argument in homosexuality today, in all the literature. We believe it's fixed. You were born male or female, right? And I'm not getting into the androgynous, you know, 0.11% of all people who are born differently physically and who don't have that quite determined the same way that you and I do. But we believe that God has made that fixed in all of us, that male and female, our sexuality, our gender is fixed. Our culture says now that sexuality and identity is fluid. Say, we say biblically fixed, they say fluid. For them, it's not really nailed down. Um, it's, not, it, it's not something that is quite as determined as it used to be. Um, they would say today it's ever-evolving, and male and female are not binary. Binary, you know what that means? That, that God made male and female, and they're opposite of one another. And they would say that's not true, but that's not really how it is. For them, for homosexuals, identity is fundamentally a sexual issue. And it's not one that's because God created you that way. A famous atheistic, paganistic philosopher who died a number of years ago, Michael Foucault from France, said sex is more important than your very soul. And that's what they believe. So the lies are, number one, go ahead. Number two, homosexuality is good and acceptable. There's a guy out there. I, I just lost his first name in my mind. His last name is Vines. Mm, I just lost it in my mind. But he wrote a book, God and the Gay Christian. And the review of it is, in paragraph form, is that it is a theological treatise about how the Bible proves that God is for homosexuality completely. Now you wonder, is he reading the same Bible I'm reading? But the truth is, is that's what people have to say. They've even gone to the farcical idea that you're going to take the Bible and prove that everything Christianity has said all along since its inception, right, is wrong. And that God is for it, and it's good, and it's acceptable. Now, you think that's a farce, right? But that's what's going on out there. And there's books written on it, and great reviews, and people are applauding it. And 
Not to belabor the point, but that's what's happening in a lot of public schools and private ones, for that matter, that leave God out of the equation. So our identity, homosexuality, is good and acceptable. Couldn't be any further from the truth. And I'm going to say it up front. I may say it again. There is no such thing as gay Christian. It's not possible. Um, But let me say this. There's also no such thing, and I mean practicing homosexuality. There's no such thing as adulterer Christian or fornicator Christian. In fact, read Revelation 21.8, and there's no such thing as practicing lying Christian because all of them have their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So I I don't want to singular it out as if it's the only thing, but it is certainly amongst those who are headed to the lake of fire as well. And that should break our hearts, by the way, if it doesn't already. Thirdly, sexuality and identity is fluid, which I said already a little bit. So that's why people can believe. I read an article, believe it or not, that um, I think I I mentioned this in my transgender talk, but the the little girl, uh, eight-year-old girl who went to school and her mom told the teacher that she may dress differently on any given day because she decides that day when she gets up which she'll be a boy or a girl. And, th- and that's how it works. And parents are okay with that today in our culture and society. And so they think it's fluid. In other words, it can change. You could go one and you could go back. In fact, believe it or not, and I don't understand this fully, that they, can, they think that you can be both at the same time, which is almost to the extreme where it's almost hard to grasp how that you can even fathom that, but that's where things are headed. So those are the three lies, and I don't spend a ton of time on it because I think that that's prevalent and probably easy to grasp for you to, that the wrongness and the ungodliness of it. But let me put on the other side of it, which also answers the lies, is God's design. And this is huge, and if you're going to have, and I don't say argument like you're going to yell and scream and whatever, but I mean argument, you're going to have a conversation with someone about this issue, um, this is really where you want to camp if you can. Um, so let me tell you about God's design. This is in, you know, conflict and counter to Satan's deception. So let me give you four truths. Um, our identity is not, like the secularists would say, is not in terms of our sexual preference. Back to our text, if you look there again in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness in the forever hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. People have debated, written books on it. Oh, it's endless about what does it mean to be in the image of God. But I can tell you what it's not. It's not that you have blue eyes like I do or brown eyes. It's not that you are white or black. It's not your intelligence level or the high, the number of your IQ. Um, It's not your relational status, whether you're single or None of those things have to do with being made in the image of God. Um, being made in the image of God, sort of a sh- little bit of a side. In ancient Near East, when the God, which was invisible by and large most of the time, was not present, they made an image that was like him. And so that image looked like him. Now, they also believed that you could pray to this God and that you could ask this God to do great things. And it wasn't that they were so, and maybe you've thought this, that they, they were so, can I say, unintelligent to believe that this wasn't a statue made of bronze and that wasn't going to be walking around and doing it. It wasn't that they didn't understand that. They're not, you know, out there that much. What they believed was is that statue represented 
it was the image of that God. So they made the image of the God, and you prayed to it, and if you treated the God right and, 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 and prayed to him and asked him things, the God that that image represented would hear you. And so you've got asteroid poles, you've got temples made to the gods all in the Old Testament through the first century and on and on. You've got statues, you've got even Buddha, you've got all this stuff. It's, I don't think that most people believe that that god is con that little statue. It is the image of that god. Our god made an image of himself. And that god in the, in the pagan world represented the God that was invisible that you couldn't see, and you could see it visibly, and it represented him on earth. That's what we are. To be made in the image of God is not, we're not statues, we are living images. We are the representative of God on earth. So the idea was humans, at the core of why they exist and God made us, was to show everyone what it means to be in the image of God, or like him, what he is like. So we're supposed to be like him. The idea throughout the Bible is you be like God. Thus, watch, now you know the perversion of what Satan was doing in the garden. He told Eve, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from the, knowledge of tr the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, they were to be like God. They were made in his image but as subservient and obedient. He said, no, see, you can be like God, but you can be equal. You can tell yourself, independent of his authority, what is good and evil. See, it was a perversion of what it meant to be in the image of God. You and I, every day, are to reflect God back to him. When we sinned in the garden, we did not lose being made in the image of God. It was not marred or we lost the capacity of what that was supposed to do, and that is reflect God's glory back to him. So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In our sin, we no longer have the capacity as images of God to reflect his glory back to him. That's why we have to be recreated in his image, because then we're able to glorify him again in our lives. And so in the Bible, here's what the Bible says. We are not... Our identity is not about our sexuality. It's about being made in the image of God. Why is that singularly so crucial? And the reason is, is because that is a fixed truth. It is not fluid. Because what they want to say today is, you can change your identity. You can change your body. It would be designer physical bodies today because you can change your body, change your gender, change your sexuality. And here's what God says, no, I made you that way, and it's fixed because you are in my image. And that means everyone in the whole world is fixed. Everyone, because every human being ever made has been made in the image of God to reflect him. And that's why homosexuality is cosmic rebellion, because God says, this is how I made you. I'm in charge. You're in my image. And we have re rebelled against that. On the screen is a video by Sean McDowell, who's the son of the famous McDowell apologist who's written all the books and so forth and so on. This is his son, another generation later. And he's going to tell us a little bit more about this subject. There are a few questions that more people get upset 
offended, angry about today than the topic of homosexuality. It's clearly a hot topic in our culture. For a long time, I avoided addressing this issue. No matter what people say, somebody gets upset, somebody gets offended, relationships get broken. I'm a high school teacher. Many students come to me hurting to talk about their same-sex attraction. And the last thing I want to do is respond in a way that's not loving. Our culture says that Christians are anti-gay. Our culture says that God hates gays. Let me tell you something. It's not true. I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not right when Christians tell anti-gay jokes and they make remarks against gay people. That is insulting somebody made in the image of God. God loves gay people and he loves every single one of us. Really the big question is, has God spoken for the issue of sex? If not, we get to decide for ourselves. But if God has spoken, then there's a way that we in fact are supposed to live. From the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God has a certain design and a pattern for us. Instantly, some people are thinking, oh, here we go, God's a cosmic killjoy. He's got rules, he's got commandments. He's trying to control how we live. And I used to think that way for a long time. God gives us certain commands and rules for our good. So we look at the beginning in Genesis. In the very first chapter, it says that God made male and female, and they were both made in his image. Then you skip forward to chapter two. The man will leave his father and his mother, join to his wife, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. So right away, there's this pattern that God's creation involves male and female, and then he set up a sexual relationship to be between one man and one woman in a committed monogamous, permanent relationship for life. And one of my friends pushed back and he said, well, wait a minute, Genesis is just describing what happened, but it's not setting up a pattern for how we're necessarily supposed to live. People often say, if you have a problem with homosexuality, you're hateful, bigoted, homophobic, and intolerant. But few people think that about Jesus. The Jesus card still brings a view of compassion and mercy in our culture. Well, what's interesting is Jesus spoke about the subject. Jesus had a particular view about the context for sex. Some religious leaders come to Jesus and they're asking him a question about divorce. And they say, what happened? You know, can a man divorce his wife? Now he wasn't asked about homosexuality and the reason was because this wasn't an issue even on the table. It was understood that marriage was between one man and one woman and then sex was confined to that relationship. Jesus says, let me remind you back at the beginning. God made them male and he made them female in his image and the two shall become one. And he says, what God has brought together let not man separate. We see it repeated in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18 and chapter 20, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end, God's pattern for sexuality is to be between one man and one woman in a committed, monogamous relationship for life. We live in a culture that wants to define us by our sexuality. Straight or gay or whatever definition we use, it's as if our sexual nature is our truest God defines us differently. God sees us as his children, as valuable individuals made in his image. It's only when we submit all of our lives, including our sexuality to God, that we experience his best and we experience true freedom. Sean's saying basically that we are against homosexuality, but we need to love people who are enslaved to it. And we need to bring them the good news that they are, they are also made the image of God. And when they come to know Jesus Christ and submit all things, including their sexuality to him, that everything can change. And, and I like that because the second truth, which is up there, we are made male and female. 
that women and men were made both by God. As he said it, you can see that he made, in chapter 2, Adam out of the dust of the ground. Later in the chapter, he brings Eve out of his side and his rib. And so God made them both. And, and, And he says this, and what is your identity is, you're made in his image, male and female. Now here's the thing, even in feminism today and other egalitarianism is, is that they say, well, men and women are equal. Well, we are equal. We are equally made in the image of God. I am not more in the image of God than my wife is and nor any other men or women. We are all equally made in the image of God, but we are the same as far as being human and being in the image of God, but we are very different by design in a lot of other ways. We have different bodies. We have different emotional makeup, physical makeup. We have different responsibilities. We have different roles in marriage and all kinds of, so there's a lot of similarity. But, and, and here's the key point. God made it that way. God designed it that way. So when you get to, and these are the ones he quoted, in Leviticus chapter 18, in verse 22, it says, a a man should not lay with another man like he does with a woman. In other words, it's forbidding any sort of homosexuality. And you can read another passage he didn't say. 2 Peter 2, 6-10 says, read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God says he put them up as an example of how he would destroy those who live ungodly, meaning those who live in the flesh. And Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of those, and homosexuality was rampant there, um, that that is what the end will be. And so Leviticus called them, and I I want you to, if you're going to write something down tonight, remember this as well. And in that Leviticus passage I talked to you says, if your man is not to lay with another man as he does a woman, and here's what it says at the end of the verse, because this is an abomination to the Lord. So I'm going to explain something to you that relates to our subject. There are, God hates all sin. Don't get me wrong. Fornication, adultery, all sexual sin, whatever it might be, and on any other sin for that matter. But God has a special hatred for a number of things. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, Six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. So he hates things. But then there are things, can I say, he really hates. <laughs> and he double hates them. And, and here's what I found as you study the Hebrew word abomination in the Old Testament. That not every time, but by and large, the times that abomination is used to describe sins, they are things that are against the decree of God, meaning he said don't do it. But they're also against the design of God. So they are doubly wrong. And lying is one of them. Abomination, sexual perversion is one of them. Pride, he hates the abomination. Homosexuality is one of them. Um, If you take the time and read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, you're going to find that it's the longest expose against homosexuality in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in, in the center of all of culture in the Roman world, in the capital, and that was a rampant thing, and I won't even talk about all that, but he spends verses 29 through 31 mentioning a bunch of sins by list, a bunch of them in there, and, but he only says them by naming them off, and he takes two verses to do it. 
but almost the rest of the entire paragraph, another 18, 16 or 18 verses, he spends talking about sexual perversion and homosexuality is the main subject. And so he talks about it in different ways. He talks about it as exchanging God, you know, exchanging God for creature and exchanging truth for lies. And he, and he goes through the whole thing. But why does he spend so much time on this one subject and then just minimally list a bunch of other bad things at the bottom? Because homosexuality is an abomination. And here's why. It goes against God's decree and his design. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Walker? If you read Ephesians 5, and you know it pretty well, that it says that marriage is a mystery. Here's why marriage is a mystery. It's because the relationship that a woman has with a man in marriage, in that context, is to be a picture of the relationship of Jesus and the church. In other words, how a man and a woman relate to each other, the man being the head, the woman being the wife, and how he loves and sacrifices for her is to picture the redemption Jesus Christ did on the cross for his church. So why does God get especially angry at homosexuality? Because it blurs, mars, and de—what's the word I'm thinking about? Denigrates, thank you. Denigrates the whole picture of what Jesus did when he saved us. And can I say it nicely? That angers God greatly. It angers because it goes against everything that he has done in his son, and homosexuality does that. So, next argument sexuality and identity is fixed. This is a truth that's in the Bible. One of the biggest arguments I've had, and I had, well, this has been six, seven years ago, I went out to lunch with someone who asked me to go out with them, and they, I, they told me they were homosexual, and they had talked to me a little bit before about it, and I went out and talked with them for a couple hours over lunch. And one of the arguments was that when I talked with them was Jesus had never said anything against homosexuality, and Sean McDowell alluded to that. And the reason he didn't have to is because it was non-existent in Jewish culture, uh, number one. And number two is that he did say something against it, and I would say indirectly. And let me say, in, Jesus, in the reference he mentioned was Matthew 19, 3-6. It's a debate with the Pharisees about divorce. The, the Pharisees viewed divorce as you could divorce your wife for a very few things, or the more liberal view was you could divorce her for anything. And I'm not lying when I tell you that in the rabbinic sage notes, it says that if your wife burns the toast, it's cause for divorce. That's the liberal side. And so it, it went from really very extreme here, conservative, to very liberal. So they're asking Jesus, what's the reason why you can divorce? And he says, it wasn't so from the beginning that God, and he quotes the Genesis passage in Genesis 2.24, and he says, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And that's how God designed it. So we could say this, Jesus, number one, believed in the, the authority of Scripture, and number two, he believed that the way God designed sex and marriage to work is between a man and woman in a covenant relationship for life. And that's exactly what he believes. And when you say that, it eliminates that a man and a man or a woman and a woman could ever fit that definition. Let me ask one more, say one more thing. How in the world did we get here? Did you ever think of, you know, talk to people, I'm 57, but some of you are older than that. And did you ever think in your lifetime that you'd see all the things that are happening today? I mean, did you ever think that 
you know, homosexuality was a closet issue, and when I was younger, you didn't see it. Now it's something that everybody wants to come out and say they are, and it's practiced by, and it's not, no one's ashamed of it anymore. I mean, Jeremiah says, my people have forgotten how to blush. And I think that America is certainly that and more. And, and then people changing their gender. I mean, I think my dad was here. He'd probably roll over in his grave and can't believe the things that are happening. Question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? Over time, over time, um, we have come to the realization that we can now have um, sex and have no babies. There's medication for that. But we've also come even further, flipping around. Now in our day, we can have babies and no sex. So now you can get someone else's embryo that's been, you know, and take their stuff, you know, and all that and implant it in somebody. And you don't, and that's why now, see, the definition can so easily change because you could be married with two men in New Jersey and you could actually have a child of your own because you don't have to be able to have babies by, between the two of you. You can just get someone else's. And, and our culture has basically said, whatever you want to design, see, God isn't the maker. He's not the designer. He's not the one who tells you who you are and what you're about. You can be. And that is the number one lie from the very beginning from the very time that everything started. Let me close in a little bit of a positive note, um, and then I'm going to play that clip. And I know it's a little longer, so I'm going to say about one more thing, Steve, because we're going to go a few minutes over. 1 Corinthians 6, if you'll turn there real quick. If I'm apologetically, I, I hope apologetics always leads to evangelism for me. Corinth was a very decadent place. In fact, it was a phrase and culture, not just in Corinth, but around the, the uh, world at that time, is to live like a Corinthian. <laughs> it wasn't a compliment, I'll just say that. So to be Corinthian was awfully immoral. And here's what he says. These were people who used to be this way before they came to church and got saved. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So very clearly, you cannot be a Christian and be gay. You cannot be, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 is the other use of this. And Ephesians 5, 5. And every time you will not inherit the kingdom of God, is used, it means you're not going to be in heaven. You're not going to be saved. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, inherit the kingdom of God. It's a bracket. Nine and ten say the same thing. And such were some of you. See that? Past tense. It means that you are not born that way. There is no homosexual gender. You are not born. It's not fluid. You are wrong in doing it, and you need to change. That would be the negative side of the gospel message. The positive side is that Jesus died for you and for homosexual sin and, and people like that. And he would want you to change and desires for you to change. And by his grace, you can change. And he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Now look at the very first nine, verse nine. You not know the unrighteous. This is sanctified is another English way of saying righteous. So what happens when someone gets saved? They get a new identity. From homosexual people who were unrighteous, they go to being righteous. And that's what Jesus does when he saves someone. He gives them a new identity, and with that identity comes a new lifestyle and behavior. So they can't stay the same. You were that, but you can't be anymore. Why? Because you were washed. You were justified, and you were sanctified, it says. 
all by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. We're going to close with a seven-minute clip, I think, of Rosaria Butterfield, who is an apologist for the Christianity. She's written a book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I highly recommend it. And I say, it, I, I want you to watch it, and it's a couple minutes over, I know. But here's why I want you to watch it. See, abstract, we can think tonight, okay, if someone says this and they're homosexual and I say this, I, I want you to see this woman who was a lesbian came to know Jesus, married a pastor, and has a completely amazing ministry today. And it was because a pastor invited her over for dinner and showed hospitality. And that, for over a year or more, changed her life. Not winning apologetic arguments by presenting just the facts alone, but by loving her and making a difference. Watch what she says about her pastor friend, Ken, who changed her life. I was a gay activist. So, and I was also a lesbian and a professor. And the reason that I was a gay activist was not because I was angry or upset or, um, uh, you know, had an ax to grind, but I genuinely believed that the world would be a better place um, with a, a politics of inclusion and acceptance. And, uh, and I felt that sexual diversity was a key part of, of what, what real diversity meant. And, um, you know, I, I, never, I never remember struggling with same-sex attraction. In fact, when, when sometimes, uh, you know, well-meaning Christians say, you know, we want to put a banner out in front of our church and say, you know, please welcome everybody struggling with same-sex attraction, you know, and we're hoping we'll capture people like you used to be, I, I'm sort of scratching my, my head. You know, I was a very happy lesbian. I was not struggling with same-sex attraction until I had committed my life to Christ, and then I struggled. <laughs> but prior to that, there was no struggle. Um, I genuinely believed that uh, lesbian sexuality was a, a more moral choice. Uh, I had had a heterosexual past, so I considered myself an informed lesbian, if you will. Um, <laughs> I, sorry, well, wasn't raised in the evangelical church, so I'm not quite... <laughs> I'll probably say other things in the, in the next 10 minutes that might, uh, might cause a flurry. And, you know, and I just, I just really did, did not un, un, understand it. And I remember once uh, speaking at a gay pride march, and there was someone who had a, a placard up that said, AIDS is God's curse on homosexuals. And one of my friends quickly made a placard that said, if AIDS is God's curse upon homosexuals, then lesbians must be God's chosen people. And, and I think, you know, I, I say that, I'm not just to be a smart aleck, but I think people don't realize that when you choose to not share the gospel, but instead choose a kind of easy Christian moralism, it is so easy to defeat. Mm. You know, it, it, it both angers and goads and confuses, but it, it also just, it falls apart. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to Christ? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had written an article um, that was published in the Syracuse Post-Gazette, and it was on the Promise Keepers. And I don't remember what the Promise Keepers did. I, maybe my favorite parking spot was missing that week, but they came to town, and I was very much on a war against patriarchy, and so I wrote this letter. And, um, and I had just recently co-authored the university's first domestic partnership policy. So, um, you know, so I think I was kind of in the news. And an elder at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church brought my, my, um, my op-ed uh, and put it on Pastor Ken Smith's desk. 
and said, look, we need to shut this woman up. She's trouble. And Ken apparently said, oh, how about if Floy and I invite her over for dinner? Um, And I was at the time writing a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. And so when when Ken wrote me a letter and when we subsequently talked on the phone, um, I quite frankly thought, yeah, I'd love to go to dinner at your house. This is like a free research assistant for my book because I was a real scholar and I realized that, uh, you know, I didn't, I couldn't wade through this book without help. And so that really began a very fruitful um, uh, conversation that that turned into a real friendship. So at my first dinner at Ken's house, he omitted two very important steps in the rule book of how Christians deal with a heathen like me. You know, take notes, right? Number one, he uh, did not share the gospel with me. And number two, he did not invite me to church, which made me wonder if I was chopped liver or something. You know, it was a, but one of the things it really did show to me was that uh, Ken was willing to have a kind of long-term friendship with me. He didn't, you know, he wasn't thinking to himself, oh no, you know, what if she gets hit by a car when she leaves this house and I haven't shared the gospel with her? It will be all my fault. You know, mm-hmm. he, was, he was in it for the long haul. And one of the things that he did not do. And if you talk to Ken Smith um, or uh, you know, read some of the things that, that, that he has written, I mean, he, he will tell you that he, he did not talk to me for a very long time about my sins, plural. And he didn't talk to me about my sins, plural, because he knew I had no understanding of sin, principial. And, you know, and what I mean by that is I had no idea that Christians believed that original sin distorted everyone. And Ken wasn't going to deal with my sins, plural, until he felt that we had a a deep enough understanding of these things. Hmm. And so we spent a good bit bit of time talking through the Bible, talking through life. Um, He he not only witnessed to me the gospel, but he also witnessed to me what it means to be a good neighbor. And um, I think when someone asked Ken recently, you know, you know, when did you talk to Rosaria about you know, the big issues there? You know, Ken never presumed that my being a lesbian was my biggest sin. Um, hmm. he, he knew it wasn't, in fact. He knew that unbelief was. Hmm. And so, I, you know, his house was a really interesting house to me. Um, the, the gay and lesbian community is a community quite given to hospitality. And I tell people that I use the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my queer community because that's where I learned that. But I noticed Ken's house was a lot like my house. People would come in and out and the Bibles would be open. And, you know, this wasn't like a museum piece. You know, it'd be open. Somebody would spill coffee. That's okay. Um, But I was especially struck with Jesus's invitation that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. My yoke was hard and harsh and it was just increasingly so. And at at a dinner party that that was a kind of standard thing. Um, In the gay and lesbian community, it's common that one night of the week, somebody's house is always open so that the community really functions like a community. People know where to gather and talk and things. My night was Thursday night. And at this gathering, my, my transgendered friend cornered me and said, you know, you're changing and this Bible reading is changing you. Hmm. 
And, and, um, and I, said, I said, you know, what if, what if I said, I think we're all in trouble? You know, what if, what if, I, what if I said, I'm, I'm starting to believe that Jesus is real and risen and we're all in trouble? And in 1999, when I did come to Christ, I did not come to Christ because, because I thought it was a good deal. Hmm. Okay, I didn't come to Christ because I thought that you know, like weighing a car insurance policy. I was hedging my bets. And I didn't come to Christ because I had stopped loving my girlfriend or stopped loving being a lesbian. I came to Christ because of who Christ is. Hmm. And, and I came to Christ because I was, I was convicted that although I had felt sincerely that I was on the side of peace and justice and compassion, that it was indeed Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Let's pray. Father, help us to speak the truth in love, not water it down or shade it in any way, but yet do it in such a way that people know that we care about them and that we love them and that, Lord, you have made them in your image and you desire for them to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Thank you for changing our lives. Thank you for saving us. This may not have been our biggest problem, but unbelief was for all of us, and you gave us faith, and we're so grateful. You changed us. So Lord, help us to love others that they too might also be changed into your likeness. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.